Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Getting enough quality sleep is a basic building block and necessary ingredient to live a happy, healthy life. But many people don't get enough of it. Do you toss and turn at night, struggling to fall asleep? If so, turn off the white noise and try a sleep meditation podcast instead. The Sleep Wave podcast has been designed to help listeners fall asleep quickly and peacefully each night through original meditations and sleep hypnosis. As you lie in bed each night, journey to the white sand beaches of Bali or stare up at the northern lights while a crackling campfire is at your side as you relax to beautiful meditations told by Carissa Vacker, award-winning voice actor and meditation guide. Following your great adventures, allow Jessica Porter, a hypnotherapist of 22 years, to guide you into deep rest, where you will learn to take the world off of your shoulders and fall asleep faster than ever. With two episodes a week released on Mondays and Wednesdays, the host let listeners into their lives and experiences and gives insight into what sleep means to them. So instead of laying awake for hours tonight, listen to Sleep Wave and prepare to never hear the end of an episode. Dr. Cyrus Kambata is the New York Times bestselling co-author of Mastering Diabetes and has helped more than 10,000 people reverse the underlying cause of insulin resistance. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Stanford University in 2003 as well as a PhD in nutritional biochemistry from the University of California at Berkeley in 2012. He is an expert in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, has been living with type 1 diabetes since 2002, and has reduced his insulin use by more than 40% using a food-first approach. Robbie Barbero, MPH, is an internationally recognized diabetes expert and New York Times bestselling co-author of Mastering Diabetes, who has helped countless people reverse insulin resistance and take back full control of their metabolic health. Robbie earned a master's in public health from American Public University in 2019 and completed his undergraduate education at the University of Florida in 2011. He has been living with type 1 diabetes since 2000, has a current A1C of 5.4% and a time in range above 90% while maintaining an active lifestyle. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am really excited to have these two guys on today, Cyrus and Robbie. Um, You may know them from Instagram. That's how I know them. Um, called Mastering Diabetes. They also have written a top seller book, like the bio said. And so I am really excited to have them on the show today. So welcome, both of you. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be with you here. And uh, we love talking all things about metabolic health and diabetes. So let's have some fun. Yeah, we're really excited to be here. Really great to meet you. Well, thank you so much, you guys, for being here. So will you tell my audience just a little bit about yourselves, your background, how you got involved in writing this book, things like that? Sure. So I was uh, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes back in 2002. So if we kind of rewind the clock about 20 years ago, I was a happy-go-lucky kid. I was a senior at Stanford University. I was just trying to graduate with a degree in mechanical engineering, just kind of move on with my life. And actually at that time, I got diagnosed with not only one, not two, but three autoimmune conditions. So the first one was Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. The second one is alopecia universalis, which is, as you can see, I have no hair. 
no eyebrows, no eyelashes, none of that. Like basically it's total hair loss. And then the third one was type one diabetes. And all three of them set in within a six month period. And I was like, am I doing something wrong? Like what, what is going on here? I don't understand. So, um, I was I naturally just looking for answers and my medical team at that time, basically they didn't have very many answers for me and they couldn't explain why I had developed Hashimoto's, why I had developed alopecia. And they certainly couldn't explain why I had developed type one diabetes. And that's okay that, I'm, that I didn't require them to give me answers, but they were very honest with me. And they said, Hey, listen, you know, like if you eat a low carbohydrate diet, then that's a way that you can lower your blood glucose and keep it nice and controlled. And you can also prevent yourself from using a large amount of insulin. Trust me, it'll make your life easier. And I was like, okay, great. You're telling a 22 year old college kid who loves playing sports to eat more meat, more chicken, more red meat, more white meat, more fish, more olive oil, more eggs, more bacon. Awesome. I'm going to do that. No questions asked. And they also told me they, they kind of drilled into my head, like, Hey, carbohydrate carbs are bad for you. You know, breads, cereals, pastas, fruits, potatoes, like just don't eat too much of that stuff. Cause when you do your glucose is going to do weird things and it's going to be hard to control. So I was like, all right, cool. Sounds like a plan. Let's make this happen. So I followed their recommendations for the first year. Carolyn, my blood glucose was a disaster. I tried so hard to follow their advice, but no matter how low carbohydrate I ate, no matter how much bread I avoided, no matter how many fruits I didn't eat, no matter how many potatoes I didn't eat, my blood glucose, which is supposed to be between 70 and 130 all day long, was between like 40 and 400 all day oh, long. Wow. And it was like mind boggling. And I was like, I was just driving myself nuts because I'm, I'm the kind of person that like, I like answers and I like finding answers and I couldn't find the answer to my own personal health. So this started me on a, on a, on a journey, if you will, to like, go figure myself out to try and understand how can I feel better? That's all I was asking myself. So long story short, I ended up talking to people in San Francisco at the time who ended up, you know, having information for me and they pointed me in the direction of eating a plant-based diet. And I didn't know anything about human biochemistry. I didn't know anything about human biology. And I didn't know anything about vegetarian diets or vegan diets, nothing. But I was like, cool, I'm open-minded. Let's see what we can do. So I met a guy. His name was Dr. Doug Graham. Dr. Doug Graham back in 2002 was basically just teaching people how to transition to a raw vegan diet. And he was the first person that I, that I had met who was very knowledgeable about anything related to diet. He took me under his wing. He said, listen, I'm going to transform you and you're going to get your socks knocked off of you. I was like, great, Doug, show me everything you got. And under his supervision in the first week of switching over from eating a low carbohydrate diet to a very high carbohydrate diet that contained literally nothing more than fruits and vegetables. That's it. I was eating fruits all day long, bananas, papayas, mangoes, dates, oranges, apples, you name it. And, you know, vegetables to go along with that. Within the first week of transitioning to that eating style, my blood glucose fell like a rock. I mean, it plummeted. And because it was falling so quickly, I had to back off on the amount of insulin I was giving myself. So my insulin use went from 42 units all the way down to 24 units. And I was like, what the heck is going on with me? This is unbelievable. More energy, more hydrated, could sleep better, felt better. I just was like, wow, this is like, a, this is life-changing right here. So I put myself back to graduate school to go learn the science of it, to try and figure out like what was actually happening. And that's where I went and got a PhD in nutritional biochemistry uh, from UC Berkeley. And then at that point, I met Robbie somewhere along the way, 2010. And the two of us recognized that we were sort of carbon copies of one another, both living with type one diabetes, both going through a similar journey. And we ended up creating mastering diabetes so that we could teach people living with not only type one diabetes, but 
type two diabetes, pre-diabetes, gestational diabetes, and any flavor of diabetes, how to transition towards a plant-based diet so they can get incredible results themselves. That's a fascinating story. I actually have a lot of questions for you because my dad was type one diabetic and my mom is type two. And so I've got some questions for you after Robbie introduces himself because that's really fascinating about the fruit. So I'll get back to you. For sure. For sure. Okay. So like Sarah said, we're kind of like carbon copies of each other in a lot of ways, how this story unfolds, but I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was 12. And I'm 34 now, so it's been over 22 years at this point. And so I have two older brothers. My middle older brother was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes nine years prior to me. So I basically self-diagnosed myself. I knew what the symptoms were. I was like, mom, I'm going to the bathroom all the time. I'm thirsty all the time. I think I have diabetes. She said, yeah, no, I don't think so. (laughs) You don't have diabetes. And eventually I did. I got diagnosed and I officially had type 1 diabetes. So- At the time, we were living in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and my parents wanted to make sure we had the best medical care possible. So they would take us to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And I had a team there. I had an endocrinologist. I had a nutritionist. I had a psychologist. And nobody said anything about reversing insulin resistance or becoming more insulin sensitive, which in hindsight is a big missed opportunity. Why I'm so excited to be on your show today to get to talk about this. But I went and I followed the standard American diet. They had a food pyramid at that time. And I ended up with some standard American diet symptoms. I had chronic allergies. I was sick all the time. I took Nasonex, I took Claritin D. I still got sick as an adolescent. Then I developed cystic acne as a teenager, which was really frustrating. I did everything. I did the creams. I did the pills. I did the laser treatments. They would scrape my skin, like all this stuff. I ended up taking Accutane, which is one of the most serious drugs you can take for acne. I had developed plantar fasciitis. Uh, That was frustrating as a competitive tennis player. So I just had these really nagging health issues. My energy was pretty low and life wasn't that great following the standard American diet. My diabetes control was okay, but nothing, nothing spectacular. So long story short, a seed gets planted in my mind that, you know what, maybe it's possible to reverse type one diabetes. What if I started taking really good care of my health? So there was a book and your audience might actually remember this guy. Okay. And I'm not recommending the book. His name is Kevin Trudeau. He wrote a book called Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About. Very handsome guy, uh, you know, the purple cover all over TV, sold millions of copies, ended up going to jail for some fraud and some, I think, some misinformation. So don't pick up that book. But it planted a seed in my mind that, you know what, maybe it's possible. Maybe I'm going to do anything I possibly can. And I have since, that was in 2000 and probably four, 2004, I've been on a mission to do everything I can to figure out as much as I can about natural healing and health. And this led me to learn a lot of stuff. So I can't say I'm here today having, you know, reverse type one diabetes. And for those who don't know, like type one diabetes, that's a version where it's an autoimmune condition. So Cyrus and my pancreas, we don't produce any insulin. So we have to inject insulin to survive, which is different than pre-diabetes and type two, which is actually more of a lifestyle condition, which is actually um, really, really caused by, it's marked by excess insulin production. We don't produce enough. I, I, I go on this mission to try and do anything I can. And I try a lot of different diets. I try the Weston A. Price Foundation diet. I'm eating like grass-fed beef. I'm drinking raw milk. So at the time, probably not, you probably can't even do it today, but they couldn't sell raw milk to humans. Like that's that's just not legal. So at the st- at the market, they would sell the raw milk for cats. And then I would buy it and I would consume it. All right. So I did that crazy stuff. 
uh, I eventually tried a plant-based ketogenic diet. So I would get a majority of my calories from nuts and seeds. I would eat a lot of greens, celery. I remember dipping celery in almond butter, that being like a real mainstay of my diet. But the problem was when I did this diet, I had no energy. So I was a freshman at the University of Florida at the time. I loved playing pickup basketball and I just felt terrible. My performance was terrible. I was like, I am lost. So I went back to a naturopathic doctor that I had seen over the years. And she said, you know what? Maybe you need, you need to do some chelation therapy. Maybe there's like some heavy metals that's going on. I'm like, okay, I'll try this. And it was going to be very expensive. I was going to have to drive from Gainesville to Tampa to get it done. But before I made that decision, I heard a podcast, which is so fun to say that while on a podcast. And hopefully this changes somebody else's life. But I heard a podcast of the same guru that Cyrus learned from, Doug Graham. And he was saying how this diet where you eat a bunch of fruit, mainly fruit and a lot of vegetables, could actually help eliminate heavy metals. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I miss fruit. I haven't been having any on this ketogenic diet. I'm going to try this. So I didn't do the chelation therapy and I started working with Doug. And it absolutely transformed my life. So the exact opposite of what you would expect. I started eating tons of fruit, okay? The first week, this is crazy, all right? But this is the truth. The first week I ate nothing but bananas. I'm not going to recommend that to anybody, but I did that. And I remember going down to Christmas dinner. This is December, 2006. I show up to Christmas dinner with a pyramid of bananas on the plate. So it was like five peeled on the bottom and then four and then three and then two, like literally this pile of bananas. And my parents is thinking, this is not going to last. Like, this is crazy. We've seen them go through a lot of phases. No way this is going to stick. And here we are. 16 years later, and there's either there's a pile of mangoes and man, uh, and bananas behind me for those who can see the video version. But I started to eat all this fruit and my insulin requirements, my insulin sensitivity came increased. I became more insulin sensitive, doing the exact opposite of what people with diabetes are told. And that's the fun part about living with type one is that because we inject insulin, because we count our carbohydrate content, and because we track our blood glucose, we have these three pieces of information which tell us immediately what lifestyle choices make us more insulin sensitive or more insulin resistant. And that experience is very profound and it happens to Cyrus and me and all other type ones. Every single day, every single meal, we're constantly reminded of this principle of which lifestyle choices make insulin work more efficiently versus which choices will make insulin work less efficiently. So long story short, I've now been eating this way for 16 plus years, primarily fruits and vegetables, over 700 grams of carbohydrate per day. My A1C is 5.3%. Uh, I wear a, a Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. My time in range is 89%, which means that my low A1C is not because I'm going low all the time. It's because I have great blood glucose control. And so I use a physiologically normal amount of insulin. I inject roughly 27 units of insulin per day, a normal, healthy human pancreas will secrete somewhere between 25 and 50. So I'm on the super high end of carbohydrate intake, low end of what a healthy human would need, displaying great insulin, insulin sensitivity. And just what's fun about this conversation is like the magnitude of difference between like the low carb messaging and the high carb messaging. So if I, I'll have a breakfast meal after a workout that has well over 200 grams of carbohydrate, okay? That's one meal. That means I consume more carbohydrate in one meal then a ketogenic dieter eats in an entire week. And well, we have amazing blood glucose control. So that's the fun part of this conversation. That is amazing. So two things. One, 
thank you for taking a trial that you guys have had and trying to help others with it. I just love people that do that. And then two, I'm in shock. Actually, I knew that this was your guys' philosophy. That's actually what intrigued me to your social media account because, like I said, I grew up with a father with type 1 diabetes. So we always were watching carbs. And one time I heard you guys say on social media, like, oh, yeah, we love eating fruit. We eat fruit all the time. And I was like, what? Wait a sec. I've got to listen to these guys because right. we had to be really careful with how many carbs my dad had a day. And so explain to me why this works. Why can you have 200 carbs in one meal? And why is this not spiking your blood sugar? Because that's what we were taught growing up. We can't just feed my dad a banana because it's going to spike his blood glucose. Yeah, this is a great question. This is, this is the crux of the argument right here. All right. The reason why the world of diabetes and when I say the world of diabetes, I'm talking about people who are living with diabetes, doctors who treat people living with diabetes, and researchers who research diabetes. The entire world of diabetes, for the most part, is focused on one component of the diet and wants to use that one component of the diet to explain everything that happens in diabetes. And that one component is called carbs or carbohydrate. So what the diabetes world basically does is it says, your glucose is high because you're eating too many carbs. And so they give this sort of like lump, this like this very vague definition of like, what are, what is carbs? And most people are like, oh, okay, carbs are bad for me. Carbs are bad for me. I guess I shouldn't eat carbs. I should avoid carbs. I should avoid carbs because carbs turn into sugar and sugar raises my blood sugar. And that's, what's going to end up causing more problems and more issues down the road. So from the bird's eye perspective, it makes perfect sense. It's very understandable and it's very simple. But if you actually open the hood and you look a little bit deeper, there's a couple of problems. Number one, diabetes is a very complex condition. There's multiple types of diabetes. Diabetes can manifest in many different ways. And it's very challenging to, uh, it's impossible, I will say. It is impossible to control any health condition, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, um, chronic kidney disease, fatty liver disease, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, hypothyroidism, you name it, autoimmune conditions. I don't care. You cannot control any single health condition with one thing. It's, it's too simplistic, right? So the, the overall philosophy here is that, you know, like I can control everything about your diabetes health by simply telling you how many carbs to eat. It's just too simple of a philosophy and it was never biologically correct to begin with. And there's plenty of evidence to demonstrate that. Okay. But the reason why carbohydrate became the thing that everybody cares about and that everybody still cares about is because carbohydrate energy stimulates insulin production. So your, your, your pancreas manufactures insulin. There are these things called beta cells inside of your pancreas and the beta cells have a responsibility. They're the only cell type in your body that can actually manufacture insulin and insulin is required in order to fully metabolize carbohydrate energy. So what that means is that when you eat carbohydrate energy, then there is some insulin production, which happens inside of your pancreas, that insulin gets put into the blood. And then the insulin goes and knocks on the door of your liver and knocks on the door of your pancreas and knocks on the door of your, uh, your kidney and many other tissues and says, knock, knock, there is glucose in the blood. Would you like to take it up? This is your opportunity. So insulin is nothing more than an escort or a signaling molecule that basically signals tissues that glucose is present inside of the blood. So what's happened over the course of many years is that people have twisted 
and drawn improper conclusions about the relationship between carbohydrate and insulin and carbohydrate and insulin and chronic disease. And, and as a result of that, the story basically is that carbohydrates cause diabetes, carbohydrates cause too much insulin production. Insulin is bad for you. Blood glucose is bad for you. You're going to get fat. You're going to get diabetic and you're going to die early. So don't eat carbohydrate. And that's what people believe, right? But the truth is that carbohydrate is a type of molecule that is present in many different types of foods. Okay. Carbohydrate is mainly found in a plant-based world, small amounts of carbohydrate you can get from red meat and white meat and dairy products and fish and chicken and beyond. But in the animal world has a significantly reduced carbohydrate content and the plant world has a significantly increased carbohydrate content. Now the term carbs that everybody is sort of trying to refer to, and usually that what they mean when they say, oh, I'm, I'm on a low carb diet is they're referring to processed carbohydrate, like white bread, white rice, uh, table sugar, artificial sweeteners, sugar, sweetened beverages, and things like that. So of course, every health expert, I don't care whether you're from the keto camp or whether you're from the plant-based camp, it doesn't matter. That's the one thing that we all agree upon is that refined and processed carbohydrate material is probably not good for you. And there's plenty of evidence to demonstrate that it can simulate a whole bunch of chronic disease processes. So just try and eliminate or avoid at all costs. But the problem is that what a carbohydrate truly is, as a carbohydrate is a macro molecule that is found ubiquitously in nature. Okay. It is all over the place. Okay. Carbohydrates are found in fruits. They're found in vegetables. They're also found in wood. They're also found in paper. Okay. They're, they're everywhere. So just because a carbohydrate is something that can cause your blood glucose to go high under very specific situations does not necessarily mean that it's a bad thing for you. And I want people to understand that carbohydrates are everywhere in nature. So in an ideal world, if you're living in a healthy glucose metabolic state and you are able to intake carbohydrate energy and process that and metabolize it, the reason that you're able to do that is because the carbohydrate that you eat comes from mainly fruits and vegetables and legumes and whole grains. That carbohydrate energy is it goes into your mouth, it travels down your esophagus, it gets inside of your stomach. Your stomach starts to sort of acidify that, break it apart a little bit, and then pass it to your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine is where the bulk of all nutrient absorption and digestion occurs. So inside of your small intestine, that's where uh, carbohydrates are broken down into simpler and simpler compounds. And those simpler compounds are things like glucose and fructose and xylose and mannose and galactose. Anything that ends in os is basically like a little Lego piece. And carbohydrates are a collection of Lego pieces. You can think of it as literally like a, a necklace that contains a bunch of beads and the beads all have slightly different identities. Okay. So inside of your small intestine is where there's a whole collection of enzymatic warfare, if you will. And these enzymes are just cutting these carbohydrate chains into individual pieces. And most of those pieces are glucose. And a lot of those pieces are actually fructose as well. And then there's the, all the other oses as well, but the glucose and the fructose are actually fuels. So the glucose and fructose are absorbed through the walls of your small intestine. They end up in your blood. And then in order to get into tissues, glucose says, Hey, I can't get into tissues by myself. I need insulin. So insulin again comes and knocks, Hey, liver, Hey, muscle, Hey, kidney, Hey, thyroid gland. Hey, knock, knock. There's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? There's go, go get it right now. And tissues are supposed to say, okay, cool, sweet. Give it to me. I'll take it right now. They take it up 
if they can store it as glycogen, they will. Otherwise, they'll just burn it and oxidize it for energy right now. But what, what ends up happening is that that process can go awry. And the reason that that process goes awry is because if instead of eating the carbohydrate material, you choose to eat foods that are high in fat, whether it's red meat, white meat, chicken, fish, it could be avocados, nuts, seeds, olive oil. It could be any type of oil. It could be dairy products. If you choose to eat high fat foods, then what ends up happening is that the fatty acids that come into your mouth end up going through a similar digestive process and inside of your small intestine, they get absorbed through the walls of your small intestine. They get put into your lymph system and eventually into your blood. Those fatty acids go, they, they compete with glucose and they compete with fructose and they end up in the same tissues. They get to your liver first. They get to your muscle first. And then inside of your liver and muscle, your liver and muscle basically are capable of storing small amounts of fatty acids, but not large amounts. And so when there's an excess accumulation of fatty acids inside of your liver and inside of your muscle, then your liver and muscle get the insulin receptors in both of those tissues ends up being dysfunctional, becoming dysfunctional. So the presence of excess fat causes insulin receptors to become dysfunctional. And as a result of that, insulin just simply cannot signal to the tissues as well. So what that means is that if you're eating a high fat diet to begin with, you end up creating this, this insulin resistant state where both your liver and muscle can't really talk to insulin as effectively. Then the next time you eat something carbohydrate rich, it could be a banana, it could be a bowl of quinoa, it could be some raisins, it could be some black beans. As soon as you start to eat that carbohydrate energy and not very much of it, now the glucose from that carbohydrate tries to get inside of the tissues and insulin's like, knock, knock, knock. Hey, knock, knock, open the door, knock, knock. There's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it? And the liver and muscle are like, sorry, I'm not interested right now. I got a bunch of fatty acids. I got to burn this stuff first. So at a certain, to a certain extent, the fatty acids and the glucose are sort of competing with each other for the machinery, for the enzymatic machinery inside of cells. And when fatty acids beat glucose to the punch and they end up getting there first and getting there in excess, then glucose ends up suffering. So people living with all forms of diabetes end up eating one banana, literally one banana that contains anywhere between like 15 and 25 grams of carbohydrate. And then just like your dad, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, he would eat one banana. And then within an hour or two hours, you check your blood glucose and all of a sudden you're like, damn it, right. my glucose went high again. What the hell is going on? Why is my glucose at 250? I guess bananas are bad for me. I guess potatoes are bad for me. I guess quinoa is bad for me. I'm not going to eat those foods. So then they go and they eat more high fat foods and the problem gets worse and worse and worse over the course of time. So rather than pointing a finger at the carbs as the problem, you don't necessarily have to do that. Instead, you back up and you say, okay, what is the reason that the carbohydrate material could not get properly digested and properly metabolized? The reason was because there was a prior metabolic traffic jam that initiated with the consumption of too much fat. So if I lower my fat intake, then, and only then can I turn on the carbohydrate machinery and all of a sudden carbohydrates are now more usable and more metabolizable. Does that make sense? It does. And that's actually really interesting. So I have a question then about fat because um, I've had a lot of doctors and scientists on here who talk about the importance of fat for brain health, for production of hormones, you know, lots of different things. So, I mean, how low is low? Or are we saying avoid it, have some of it? 
what are your thoughts on that? Okay. Great, really, really good question. So there are basically like three different types of fat. First of all, let me back up here. We are not saying under any circumstances to avoid fat. It's not even possible. You can't, you cannot avoid fat unless you were literally eating honey all day long. That's the only way that you could technically speaking, avoid fat. You're eating honey and drinking water something like that. Okay. So what we recommend people do is lower their fat intake and reduce their fat intake from what, what is generally present in the standard American diet, which is usually on the order of about 42 to 45% of calories come in as fat. Some people choose to eat 70% or 80% fat if they're eating a very low carbohydrate diet, like a ketogenic diet. Okay. So we tell you, regardless of whatever your fat intake is, whether it's 40, 50, 60, 80%, bring it down to between 10 and 15%. Wow. Okay? So we're not saying eliminate fat by any stretch of imagination. You bring it down to between 10 and 15% of total calories. And then in that scenario, that's when glucose metabolism has an opportunity to become more active. That's when insulin signaling becomes more active in your liver and muscle. And that's when glucose has an exit out of your blood and into your liver and into your muscle so that less insulin is required to do the work. Okay. That makes sense. So I have a question about protein. Where does protein play a role in this? Okay. Great question. Um, before we go to protein, can I just say one more thing about fat? Yes. Okay. There's multiple different types of fat. So we can't lump all fat into one category in the same way that we can't lump all carbohydrates into one category because processed carbohydrates are fundamentally different than whole carbohydrates. We also can't just say like fat is bad, right? Cause it's not a true statement, right? There's three primary types of fat. There's trans fat, saturated fat, and unsaturated fat. What the research demonstrates is that trans fatty acids are the types of fatty acids that are absolute napalm. They're napalm for your blood vessels, for your liver, for your brain, for your kidneys, for your heart, for your muscle tissue. And trans fatty acids are usually the result of a manufacturing process that come from a hydrogenation process that's purely man-made. Okay. There are some trans fatty acids, which are found naturally inside of animal products, but they're very, very, very small in concentration. And most of the trans fatty acids that you get, you get from things like cakes and pies and cookies and breakfast sandwiches and donuts and ready to use dough and beyond. So those types of trans fatty acids have been shown in the clinical research to increase LDL concentrations and stimulate the process of atherosclerosis, which is the hardening of blood vessels. And both of them can set the stage for cardiovascular disease. Right. Okay? Now there's saturated fat. Saturated fat is the type of fat that like, there is a war on saturated fat happening right now. Yes, there is. Right? There is a massive war because there is research that dates all the way back to like the early 1900s with Ansel Keys and beyond. And the research has been replicated multiple times over um, that demonstrates that saturated fat has metabolic consequences. And that is your saturated fat intake increases, the prevalence of many chronic diseases can also increase. But then there's the exact opposite side, which says, no, 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 no. All of those research studies are flawed. They were conducted improperly. You're misinterpreting the information. Saturated fatty acids are actually not only not bad for you, they're actually good for you. And you should be eating as much saturated fat as you possibly can because many tissues in your body run off of saturated fat. And that's the answer to long-term health. So here we are from our position saying, okay, hold on a second. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it's I'm probably curious. not avoid all saturated fat. It's probably not eat a bunch of saturated fat. It's somewhere in the middle. And what the research demonstrates is that saturated fat has a very, the, the type of fat that we described earlier that can negatively impact insulin signaling. That is what saturated fat does. Trust me when I say I've read almost every single paper that exists in the world of biology about how saturated fat can impact the insulin receptor and how it can in fact impact insulin signaling. 
And without a shadow of a doubt, there's plenty of research back 20, 30, 40 years that shows that the higher your saturated fat intake, the more dysfunctional insulin receptors become in your muscle, in your liver, and in many other tissues. And that's a problem because like we talked about earlier, if you make the insulin receptor dysfunctional, then insulin signaling goes awry. And then all of a sudden you end up with glucose that is pooling your blood that causes high blood glucose values. Okay. Okay. So saturated fatty acids are, are not only implicated in the process of increasing insulin resistance, but there's also studies that show that when you increase your saturated fat content, you can also significantly increase your LDL cholesterol concentration. And we have to talk about that because LDL is a type of cholesterol, your bad cholesterol that is, that can significantly predict your risk for a future cardiac event. So we're, everybody's trying to keep their LDL concentration below a hundred. That's the magic number. Get it below hundred, hopefully closer to 70. What the studies show is that people who eat more animal foods, people who eat more saturated fat, more difficulty controlling their LDL. And a lot of those individuals end up with high LDL that's greater than hundred. And those are the types of people that end up using statin medication to try and bring their cholesterol back down. Okay. Interesting. Now the final, I'll, I'll stop talking in one second here. The third type of fatty acid is unsaturated fatty acids. Unsaturated fatty acids are the type of fatty acids that are actually the safest type of fatty acids. There's MUFAs and PUFAs, monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fatty acids. We could talk for hours about MUFAs and talk about hours for hours about PUFAs as well. Suffice it to say, if you're going to be eating fatty acids, if you choose to include them in your diet, we strongly recommend getting your fatty acids from the unsaturated, from foods that contain unsaturated fatty acids. And it turns out that the foods that, that are the most unsaturated generally come from the plant-based world. So we're in agreement with the people in the ketogenic camp and the people in the, in the paleo camp that agree that unsaturated fatty acids are actually healthful. Absolutely agree with them. The question is, where do you get those? And most of those unsaturated fatty acids can come directly from the plant world. And that's one of the reasons why we recommend eating a high quantity of plant material while keeping your total fat intake between 10 and 15%. So why don't you give my listeners just a couple ideas of where they would find those unsaturated fats in nature? Sure. Okay. Unsaturated fats are all over the place. Okay. So you can get, the truth is that you can get unsaturated fatty acids from eating things like black beans and chickpeas and, you know, legumes, lentils, peans, bees, they're all over the place. You can also get them from fruits. Okay. Most people think that fruits are just like piles of sugar. They're not, they contain fat, carbohydrate, and protein, and they definitely contain unsaturated fatty acids. You can get a lot of unsaturated fatty acids from whole grains. And um, that's, a, that's a great place to get them actually, because the studies actually demonstrate that people who eat more whole grains end up with a significantly improved digestive health at the same time. The, the one thing that I will also say here about unsaturated fatty acids is that the conversation about unsaturated fatty acids usually leads you in the camp of omega-3s. Because researchers and doctors and individuals recognize that your omega-3 status matters. Right. Okay. Having some significant amount of omega-3 inside of the inside of tissues, especially inside of the, the membranes of red blood cells, they are very, very important for longevity. There's no question about it. Okay. So most people are terrified that their omega-3 concentration is low. Right. And as a result of that, they end up trying to eat fish oil and trying to get omega-3 from marine products. And that is definitely a source of omega-3. There's no question about it. But I think one of the, one of the mistakes that I think that a lot of people make is that they don't sufficiently, number one, they don't measure their actual baseline omega-3 status. So they, they kind of make the assumption that their omega-3 status is low, even though they don't know the answer. 
And then in that state, they're like, oh, wait a minute. I heard this podcast with these people talking about omega-3s. I should go get some omega-3s. So they go to the grocery store, they start taking fish oil. And the truth is maybe they need it, maybe they don't, right? Even though fish oil does contain omega-3s, there's plenty of plant-based sources of omega-3s that are also you know, very powerful, including blue-green algae. That's our recommendation for where you would get it. You can also get it from chia seeds. You can also get it from flax seeds. My point is that if you don't measure, you're shooting in the dark. You don't really know what your baseline status is. And then most people end up eating a lot of foods that contain omega-3s and they get a lot of oils in their mouth, not knowing that there's a metabolic consequence of consuming too much oil, like we talked about with saturated fat. And then as a result of that, they still don't measure to determine whether or not their omega-3 status has actually improved over the course of time. So our suggestion would be, number one, measure your omega-3 status. Get that measured every year, no questions asked. There's one company called Omega Quant that we do our omega that we do our omega-3 testing at. And we have no affiliate relationship with them in any way, shape, or form, but they're a great company. We give you a very detailed analysis. So get your omega-3 status checked with them first. If your, your number is less than 4%, then supplement. We recommend using one tablespoon of chia seeds or one tablespoon of flax seeds per day. And just that unto itself can definitely increase your omega-3 content. If your status is between four and 8%, then you're in the green zone and you're doing well. What people ultimately should be trying to get to is somewhere between six and 8%. And if you can do that, then you're going to significantly improve the longevity of your brain and your liver and kidneys and beyond. And um, that's the sort of like goal standard to try and hit. Does that make sense? Yep. I'm glad you explained all of that about fats. And I'm really curious to get my omega-3s tested. I'm a big chia seed fan and we sprinkle chia seeds in our oatmeal every day, our yogurt, our smoothies. So I'd be curious to see where my levels are. So that's good advice. That's great. So now I know my listeners are wondering, are these guys vegan? Are you guys vegan? Uh, So the answer is, if you want to call me a vegan, go for it. Do whatever you want. I don't refer to myself as a vegan. Okay. Robbie doesn't refer to himself as a vegan because it's just like a word. It's a classification. What we refer to ourselves as is we are whole food plant-based eaters. That's what we are. Okay. So you never have any meat, animal meat. Correct. We don't eat red meat. We don't eat white meat. We don't eat dairy products. We don't eat chicken. We don't eat fish. Uh, What else? Let me, let me focus on what we do eat. We eat fruits. We eat vegetables of all shapes and kinds. We eat legumes. We eat whole grains. We eat mushrooms, we eat herbs and spices, we eat green leafy vegetables. And yeah, so basically we eat hundred percent plant material and anything that came from the animal world. I used to eat that. Robbie used to eat that. We choose not to eat anymore. And so that's where we are now. The, the one distinction, the one sort of difference between the vegan world and the whole food plant-based world, the primary difference is the amount of processed plant-based foods you include in your diet. Okay. So you can go to the grocery store and you can get, you can go straight to the freezer section and you can get impossible burgers and beyond meat burgers. And then you can go to the, uh, the cracker section and you can get a bunch of quote unquote vegan crackers and you can get soy milk and a bunch of other things. Right. And you're basically, what you're doing is technically speaking, you're eating a vegan diet because you're not having any animal, you know, components, but you're getting the bulk of Paris, You can also go and get some Oreos. You get some That's Oreos, true. you get some Twix, <laughs> you, you know, you can drink yourself some Coke, you know, that right. Is true. So that's all technically vegan, um, but it's not whole food plant-based. What we do and what we recommend all of our, our clients do is go to the produce section and spend the bulk of your time in the produce section and in the bulk section. There you get real things that don't have a label on them. They don't have ingredients on them because it's just fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains. 
And if you eat as close to nature as possible with minimal processing or zero processing, um, the research definitely shows that people who eat more whole foods and less processed foods end up with decreased all-cause mortality, meaning right. they end up with less premature death. And that's a good thing because that will help, you know, keep you on this planet for a longer period of time and help reduce your chronic disease risk. Right. Well, the foods from nature are to me, miraculous. When I study what each individual fruit or vegetable can do, even at the cellular level, I just am always blown away. So yeah, isn't it crazy? It is crazy. But with that, I want to go back to protein. And mm -hmm. because obviously you're getting your protein from legumes and beans and lentils and things like that. But sure. um, my mom's a type two diabetic and yep. her doctor is constantly saying, you need to increase your protein. And I hear that quite often from people. So you wouldn't agree with that, correct? Yeah, that's not necessarily true. So the in the world of diabetes in particular, they talk about protein as, as having a stabilizing effect. They say, eat protein because it stabilizes your blood glucose. Maybe your dad heard that. Have you ever, was he ever told that? Well, yeah, and I've been told that many, many times just for my own oh. eating. Yeah, right, okay. Uh, about two hours ago, I literally just gave a presentation at a medical conference in front of 500 doctors where I explained to them the actual research that has been conducted in people living with diabetes. And the research shows that there's this thing known as a late postprandial hyperglycemia and late postprandial hyperinsulinemia. In English, here's what this means. I was going to say, those are some big words. Yeah, seriously. Here's what this means. Suppose you take two, two different groups of people. Group, uh, group number one eats a, uh, a meal that contains carbohydrate, fat, and protein. Okay the amount of fat and protein in their diet is low and the amount of carbohydrate in their diet is fixed. Call it, you know, 50 grams. Okay. So you can 50 grams of carbohydrate with a small protein intake and a small fat intake. They eat that meal. They watch their blood glucose patterns over the course of the next 12 to 18 hours. The second group of people eats the same carbohydrate content, same 50 grams, but they either increase their protein content or they increase their fat content. One of the two. And then they monitor those people and see what happens to their blood glucose control over the next 12 to 18 hours. And what they find is that people who consume a meal that contains low fat and low protein end up with a normal blood glucose rise within the first three to four hours of eating a meal with a blood glucose rise of like 30 to 40 points. Blood glucose comes up, blood glucose comes right back down, and then it's nice and stable for the next 12 hours. Everything is super chill, exactly the way it's designed. But then if you add either fat or protein to that meal in larger quantities, what you end up with is that same, that first four hours is exactly the same, literally like a carbon copy of what happened in the previous meal. Okay. Blood glucose rises by about 30 or 40 points. It comes right back down. Everything's fine. But then here's where it gets interesting. Starting at the four hour marker right there, all of a sudden you start following their blood glucose patterns and you start to see this blood glucose rise that starts rising and rising and rising and rising and rising. And it keeps on going all the way upwards of 12 hours. Okay. So that's, what's called a late postprandial hyperglycemia, meaning it starts late at about four hours after the meal and it's postprandial, meaning it's after a meal and it's hyperglycemic, meaning that it's a high blood glucose value. And then as a result of that, in order to bring the blood glucose value back down, they also see that there's a, a rise in insulin requirements that follows. So this is repeated time and time and time and time again, in people living with type one diabetes, because they're great experimental test beds. And they find that starting at the four hour marker is when you see both a rise in blood glucose and a rise in insulin. And this happens for increased fatty acid intake and 
increased protein intake. Okay. The numbers from the research is that uh, a meal that contains 28 grams of protein or more causes this problem. And a meal that contains 32 grams of fat or more causes this problem. Okay. So this idea that protein will stabilize your blood glucose doesn't actually hold up. It might make your blood glucose a little bit more controllable within that two to three to four hour window in the initially. But then what people living with diabetes often report is that they go check their blood glucose in the middle of the afternoon or at some random time point and it's high and they can't figure it out and they get frustrated and they're like, damn it. I did what they told me to do. My glucose was fine for two to three hours. And now my blood glucose is high. What the heck is going on? And oftentimes it's because of this delayed effect from a meal that's high in protein or a meal that's high in fat that happened six, eight, 10, 12 hours ago. And it's that delayed effect, which causes their blood glucose to go high and then they get frustrated. That is really interesting because I know a lot of um, diabetic doctors that are teaching have 30 to 40 grams of protein per meal. Yeah. I mean, I will literally send you this research. I will send you this presentation and I will show you exactly what I'm talking about because here's the thing. I'm not making anything up and I'm not trying to like deceive anybody. The research exists. It's there. But I think unfortunately, a lot of the doctors who recommend this information, they're great people. They really have good intentions. They just either haven't read this research or somehow they've been like, they read alternate research that shows that protein, adding protein and adding fat to a meal is actually a good thing. When in reality is there's a balance and if you add too much protein or you add too much fat, then you end up causing hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia down the road. And it's not a good thing. Wow. I have so many questions about that. And I could keep asking you for hours about that. But I sort of want to change gears and talk about another topic, if you're okay with that. We talked about diabetes, but a really trendy topic these days is insulin resistance. And so I want you to explain to my listeners what insulin resistance is and why so many people have it today. So remember that conversation that we had earlier where I said that when you eat fat or you eat excess fat in your diet, that the fat basically ends up getting absorbed through the walls of your small intestine and it gets to your liver and muscle and then ends up accumulating inside of your liver and muscle. And then the next time you eat carbohydrate material, the glucose from that carbohydrate basically can't get inside of tissues because insulin's knocking on the door saying, Hey, there's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? And uh, both of the tissues respond by saying, sorry, I'm not ready for you right now. I got to go get rid of this fatty acid stuff. That is the insulin resistance process. You can literally just think about it this way. Insulin resistance results from a diet that it contains excess dietary fat. And that excess dietary fat causes an accumulation of fat inside of your liver and muscle that then reduces insulin action. I'll say that one more time. The consumption of excess dietary fat causes excess accumulation of dietary fat inside of your liver and muscle that reduces insulin action. That is insulin resistance in a nutshell. Okay. So I've had some scientists on here about insulin resistance and they talk a lot about sugar playing a role in insulin resistance. So is that not true? So it is actually a true statement. Um, sugar, when they're referring to sugar, they're talking about refined sugar, whether it's white table sugar, whether it's high fructose corn syrup or any other artificial sweetener is my guess. And there's absolutely research that they're, they're not wrong. And by any stretch of imagination, the research demonstrates that when you consume sugar, processed sugar inside of food or sugar sweetened beverages, then you can definitely uh, become insulin resistant. But here's the kicker, the insulin resistance that develops 
from artificial sweeteners generally happens in your liver only. Hmm. Your, your muscle tissue can become insulin resistant, but your liver tissue will, will develop more insulin resistance from that excess glucose and from that processed glucose. And so your liver effectively like protects your muscle from developing insulin resistance. So the answer is yes. I am not recommending eating sugar. Robbie doesn't recommend that. None of, nobody in the whole food plant-based world would recommend that. Again, that's another thing that we all agree upon. Processed sugar, get rid of it, throw it in the trash can, don't ever consume it, period, end of story. Okay, but where the story gets twisted is that people say fruit contains sugar. Don't eat fruit because fruit will do the same thing to you that sugar will do to you. And that is a biologically inaccurate story. And that's the only, that's, that's what we were talking about earlier. And that's what I just want to drive home because it's not a true statement and fruits and sugar cannot be equated to one another because it's too simplistic of an argument. Carolyn, I would like to just add one more point here, which is where the, where the confusion comes from. All right. So I'm going to read to you uh, a quick summary of a very, very popular article that's been published on the internet that shared, that basically makes a statement that basically low carbohydrate diets perform better than low fat diets for people living with diabetes. So this, the paper says, the article says, keep in mind that all of these studies are randomized controlled trials, the gold standard of science, all are published in respected peer-reviewed medical journals. These studies are scientific evidence as good as it gets that low carb is much more effective than the low fat diet that is still being recommended all over the world. It's time to retire the low fat fat. All right. So this is where people are getting confused. Okay. And let me explain why they're confused because when these are, these are top journals, high quality researchers publishing articles, trying to make the, the, the recommendation that a low carb approach is better than low fat. But the problem is, what they are calling a low-fat diet is not actually a low-fat diet. So Cyrus just explained the 10 to 15% range. So call it maximum 15% of calories coming from fat. If you're above 50%, you're no longer in a low-fat diet in the research that we're citing, okay? So these people, they studied, uh, they cited, I think it's like 29 studies. And the percentage of calories from fat ranged from 18% to 36% in the mm. low fat group. So there is this complete misunderstanding in the entire world, even, even the research world, which then leads to the public. And people are saying, look, look, here's this research in the world's top journals. And they said, low carb is better than low fat. And what most people don't understand, even these research researchers don't understand the science that Cyrus just summarized. And this science is, is prolific, it's everywhere. We have over 800 citations in our book. And people need to really take the time to learn why the excess consumption of fat and protein leads to insulin resistance. And that's why when people eat a banana or a mango or quinoa or rice or beans, they see a spike because they're not actually doing a low-fat diet. Okay, so in those studies, they are not a true low-fat diet because they're right. above 15%. That's really right. interesting. Okay, so being below 15%, that 10 to 15% range is still okay for brain health, creating hormones, things like that. 100%. Absolutely. There's no question about it. We, we haven't run across any evidence um, that demonstrates that eating a diet that contains primarily whole foods and whole ingredients 
at a consumption of approximately 15%, between 10 and 15%, leads to, you know, some type of like fatty acid deficiency, you know, or a protein deficiency. So if, if that research exists, I would love to read it, but up until this point, I just haven't come across it. And so it's just kind of a, it's a challenging uh, concept to, uh, to understand. It can become kind of like a, a very contentious argument where somebody says, oh, that's not enough fat. And you're like, well, where's the evidence, right? So I think a lot of this information, a lot of what people respond to is just like purely anecdotal where they say like, oh, well, I lowered my fat intake and I didn't feel good. Right. And then that somehow like turns, makes most people think that like somehow from a scientific perspective, it's just flat out wrong. And, you know, there's a difference between how you feel as an individual and what actually is shown in large numbers of people over long periods of time. Right. Carolyn, I'll say this is a very important topic. And we went into detail in our book about this topic because it's so important because yeah, everybody's concerned. If I'm going to do a low fat diet, then I'm not going to get enough omega threes. I'm not going to have what I need for brain health. So a couple of things that people are misunderstanding around this topic. Number one is how much omega-3s do you need to consume? Like what, what is the requirement, all right? And in our program, just by having chia seeds or flax seeds every morning, people are already meeting their requirement for omega-3 essential fatty acids. Just then and there, they're getting more just by eating whole foods throughout the day because essential fatty acids are in every single whole food. Yes, in small quantities, but it adds up over the course of the day. When you have lettuce, you're getting your essential omega-3s and omega-6s. When you have bananas, apples, pears, beans, any whole food, it has essential fatty acids. And the other part of this conversation when it comes to um, you know, essential fatty acids, how important it is for brain health and all that stuff that people are missing is that the consumption of too many omega-6s inhibits the conversion of ALA down to EPA and DHA. So we really need to focus on having that omega-6 to omega-3 ratio be somewhere between four to one and one to one, when that's not what's happening in standard American diet. Most people are eating, eating all this packaged food, processed food. And then what they're doing is they're chasing more omega-3s when really their omega-3 consumption is actually quite adequate. They need to stop consuming too much omega-6 and and improve their conversion rate. Right. I actually talk about that quite a bit on my page about Reducing that omega-6, especially mm-hmm. in the seed oils, you know, that's just an easy way to reduce those omega-6s. So my question for you then is, I have a lot of questions. First of all, <laughs> insulin resistance is huge in America. How does yeah, someone know that they have insulin resistance? That's a great question. That's a phenomenal question. I wish, honestly, like I dream about having some type of device where you can just like take this device and you can kind of like scan it all over your body and it would come back and it'd be like, okay, your level of insulin resistance is medium or high, right? And there's really no blood test that you can take to determine whether or not you are insulin resistant to begin with. Um, so what you have to do is kind of take into a, to context multiple different biomarkers and then um, use all of those biomarkers to determine whether or not it's likely that you are living with some form of insulin resistance, okay? so. In reality, what we said earlier was that the total amount of fatty acids that are present inside of your liver and muscle, that's the determinant of insulin resistance. So unless there's like a direct measurement of how much fat is in your muscle right now, I want to know how much fat is in your muscle. That would truly tell me your level of insulin resistance. Same thing about your liver, but we don't have that test, right? So what you have to do is basically take what what we put together is this thing called PILAF, which is P-I-L-A-F, okay? Your blood pressure, your ideal body weight, your your cholesterol panel, your lipids. So that's P I L. Okay. A stands for a one C and F stands for fasting blood glucose. 
And what you want to do is monitor your blood pressure, monitor your ideal body weight. How far away are you from your ideal body weight? What does your lipid panel look like? Okay. Is your cholesterol elevated? Is your LDL cholesterol elevated? Is your HDL cholesterol too low? Right. What is your A1C value? How high is that in comparison to what it's supposed to be at 5.7% or below? And then um, what is your fasting blood glucose? If you put all that together, and then that'll give you a better understanding of whether or not you're living in an insulin resistant state. One, another marker, a, a simpler marker that, that you can get done is if you can go to the doctor and you go get a blood test. The blood test is, um, <clears throat> the, the most definitive blood test is a thing called a oral glucose tolerance test, an OGTT, or sometimes they refer to it as just a GTT. So what happens in that test is you go to a laboratory and they measure your fasting blood glucose and your fasting insulin before you even do anything. So they get a baseline measurement for how much insulin is in your blood and how much glucose is in your blood right here, right now. Then you drink a 75 gram glucose solution. So it's 75 grams of glucose inside of water. You drink that. And then they monitor your blood glucose every hour for the next three hours. Like when you're they pregnant, your, like when you're pregnant, it's a screening test for gestational diabetes. Exactly right. So what they should do, what an, a, a proper OGTT would do is measure your blood glucose and your insulin at all time points zero, one, two, and three hours. And then what you do is you construct a curve and you take a look at what happened to your blood glucose and you take a look at your insulin curve as well. And you can put the two of those together and then you can use that as a determinant whether you're insulin resistant. The true, the true test of insulin resistance is whether or not the amount of insulin inside of your blood is capable of reducing your blood glucose value. That's really what you're looking for is how effective is insulin. So most people living in an insulin resistant state will, what they'll do is they'll go check their fasting glucose and they'll be like, what are you talking about? I'm a 92. I'm not insulin resistant. Everything's fine. What do you, I'm fine. And you're like, no, 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 no. You're measuring one side of the equation. What is the insulin concentration in your blood right now? Tell me how much insulin's in your blood in the fasting state. So what most people will find is that their fasting glucose is a 92, which is a good thing, but then their fasting insulin level is a 17 right? And your fasting insulin level should be between a five and an eight. It should be very low. And if your fasting insulin level is creeping up over the course of time, that means that you're in, your, your pancreas is manufacturing a lot of insulin to try and keep your glucose value down, right? But ultimately what you want is a low fasting glucose and a low fasting insulin. And that means that you're in an insulin responsive state. Does that make sense? Yep, it does. Thank you. So mm -hmm. two questions, does insulin resistance lead to type two diabetes? And second question, is this reversible? Great questions. Insulin resistance leads to prediabetes. Prediabetes leads to type two diabetes if uncorrected. So it is not only does it lead to, it is a, it is a prerequisite. In other words, you cannot develop prediabetes unless you're insulin resistant. Okay. Prediabetes is advanced insulin resistance. Type two diabetes is advanced, advanced insulin resistance. It's like, you know, oh. extra credit insulin resistance, if that, you will. That's right? a good way to okay. explain it to people. Yeah. Okay. So you have to be insulin resistant to become pre-diabetic. And then if you continue to develop insulin resistance, then you'll develop type two diabetes. Okay. Number two, is it reversible? The answer is absolutely. Okay. In nobody knows the answer somewhere between 80 and 85% of all cases of people living with type two diabetes you can absolutely reverse it and bring somebody from type two diabetes back to pre-diabetes and then from pre-diabetes back to non-diabetic. You can absolutely do that. And the simplest way from what we have seen in the medical literature, from our experience working with thousands of people 
is that adopting a whole food plant-based diet is the, in my professional opinion, the only way to do it. Okay. And it is a very effective way to completely reverse insulin resistance and become very insulin sensitive so that you can reduce the amount of work that your pancreas is doing behind the scenes all day long, every day. And that can have profound consequences for your long-term health. I'd like to add to this, Carolyn, because uh, it's such a great question. And it's the work that we do at Mastering Diabetes is connecting all forms of diabetes and focusing on this one concept of what do you do to make insulin work more efficiently? So your question is, can you reverse insulin resistance? And what we'll say to that is in 100% of cases, you can follow a lifestyle which makes you more insulin sensitive. And we can say that with such conviction, because we're living with type one, we end up working with so many type ones, so many type 1.5s come to us, so many people living with insulin dependent type two come to us. And we've yet to see a case where somebody starts following our program and you can't objectively see in those people who are injecting insulin, it's so obvious, so clear. Does the insulin you're injecting work more efficiently at metabolizing glucose that you consume in your food? And we can get down to this very granular and we can remove fiber and we can remove fructose and really demonstrate that it's actually glucose that you are becoming more efficient at processing. So, and Cyrus was saying they're like, hey, 80 to 85%, you can reverse type, reverse type two. That's referring to the fact that some people are living with what is called insulin dependent type two. They have been living with it for so long that their beta cells are basically, they're burnt out. No matter how perfect their lifestyle is, they just, they're more like a type one. It's just not an autoimmune version where their pancreas was was damaged by you know autoimmune attack it's just that they, they've they've exhausted their beta cells and that's okay so you come to our program and you might still need to continue using insulin but what you're going to do is because you become more so insulin sensitive and you can see that in your numbers in the insulin you're using you are going to become very confident that you've reduced your long-term chronic disease risk the number one cause of death for people living with all types of diabetes is heart disease Right. It's not high blood glucose readings. So people are oftentimes, like we say this all the time, they're trading one problem for many others. So the low carb world is saying, hey, you know what? Like if I eat a bunch of cheese and meat and all these high fat foods, or even a plant-based keto diet, they're like, okay, wow, my blood glucose is flatter, right? But you have eaten yourself into a state of glucose intolerance. You can, In that state, you cannot go and have any significant quantity of fruit or potatoes or, or grains without a gigantic blood glucose excursion. And then some people then argue, oh, well, you know what? If I just start slowly adding in the carbs, I can basically, I can come back to metabolizing carbohydrates. And we're like, yes, <laughs> go ahead, start, follow our program and you're exactly right. But what, what's happening out there in the world is people are choosing to live permanently in a glucose intolerant state. And then we're coming along saying, hey, guys, hey, look over here. We got a whole other option for you if you lower the fat enough. Don't be in that no man's land like the study that I, the studies I was talking about before, where the researchers are claiming a diet that's 30% of calories from fat is low fat. It's absolutely not. So come join the party. Pick up a copy of our book. Okay, so you touched upon this a little bit, and I know listeners are now wondering this because they now understand about carbs, lowering the fat. And I bet they're wondering like, okay, do I have to do this all at once? Like all cold turkey, all of a sudden I've just got to stop the animal um, products and become and do low fat or can I slowly start 
gradually adding in more fruits and vegetables and lowering the animal products. Is it an all or nothing type of thing? No, it's not an all or nothing type of thing. We, we actually teach people to walk slowly. And the reason for that is because when you transition to a plant-based diet, uh, from an emotional and psychological perspective, it can be pretty challenging to be perfectly honest, right? Because there's almost like these withdrawal symptoms that you can develop when you're, you know, when you're eating less meat products, there's withdrawal symptoms that can, in the same way that you can, you know, if you try and quit cigarettes, cold Turkey, you can go through some like pretty gnarly withdrawal symptoms. Same thing. You try and quit caffeine really quickly, nasty headaches, withdrawal symptoms, not fun. The same type of thing can happen with your diet as well. So from a mechanical perspective, your, your large intestine, the microbiome um, is going to go under a very rapid change when you start to change the material that comes into your mouth. So if you're eating predominantly animal products, you switch that over to predominantly plant products. Your microbiome is not, you know, in a, in a very, it's an inflammatory state to begin with. Then you try and add a bunch of fiber. All of a sudden, some very strange things can happen in your digestive tract, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain. Like it doesn't feel good at all. But when you slowly integrate more plant-based material into your diet, then you can slowly improve the health of your digestive system. You can slowly improve the health of your brain and your liver and your kidney. And over the course of time, you'll end up finding that it's just a more sustainable way to eat a plant-based diet and to eat it for the long term. I'm really glad that you guys have that philosophy because that's my philosophy as well. So if you were going to tell me they all had to do this cold turkey, I know they wouldn't do it. I need to wrap this podcast up, but I do have one last question because anytime I have plant-based people on, I get flooded with DMs, this one question. So I'm like, let's just ask you guys so I don't have 10,000 DMs about this. My question always is, well, if I go plant-based, am I going to get one, enough amino acids? And two, how do I get enough protein to build muscle? Ooh, good question. Good question. I wish I could take my shirt off right now, but I'm not going to do it. To <laughs> Are be, you ripped? Be, <laughs> I can definitely. So the reason why I was saying that is because uh, over the course of time, um, I have put on a significant amount of muscle. And um, when I go to the gym, people are always like, oh my God, how are you so cut? How do you, how are you so lean? Right. And um, I am just an N of one experiment. Okay. So if you don't want to listen to what I'm saying, you, you don't want to you know, look at what can happen to many plant-based athletes. Then what I would recommend doing is go watch the movie, The Game Changers. The Game Changers was a movie that was released like three years ago, and it documents how there's many professional athletes and world champion athletes that have made the decision to go plant-based, and they've seen some significant performance improvements and recovery improvements, and they've been able to actually gain a significant amount of muscle. So there's a lot of folklore that plants don't have enough protein. If you eat plant-based material, you're going to be protein deficient. And when you're protein deficient, then you're going to look skinny. You're going to look scrawny. If you're a woman, you're not going to be able to produce a significant amount of uh, reproductive hormones. You're not going to be able to get pregnant. Uh, You're not going to be able to breastfeed your child. um, And, you know, you're going to die early. That's sort of the, like the, the programming that happens and the sort of folklore that happens in the world of protein. Okay. The truth is that what we recommend is we recommend eating a diet that contains in the same way between 10 to 15% of calories from fat. We say the same thing for protein, 10 to 15% calories from protein and the protein sources are what we talked about earlier. Protein is present in all plant-based material period. End of story. You get protein from a banana, you get protein from a strawberry, you get protein, you get higher amounts of protein predominantly from the legume category, which is beans, peas, and lentils. And you also get a significant amount of protein from the whole grain category as well. 
right? So if you're a protein seeker, then go to those two categories and you can fill yourself up. The easiest way to determine how much protein is necessary is to calculate your ideal body weight in kilograms and then multiply that by either 0.8 if you're not active or 1.2 if you're active. It's just that simple. So Robbie, let's do a calculation for you. What is your, what is your ideal body weight? 160 pounds. Okay. So Robbie's body weight is 160 pounds. I'm going to divide that by 2.2. And that tells me that he is 72.7 kilograms. So I take 72.7 and I multiply that by 0.8. And that would tell me that Robbie should eat 58 grams of protein per day. If he was sedentary, Robbie's not a sedentary dude. So instead I take that number of 72.7 and I multiply it times approximately 1.2 because Robbie is a pretty active dude. And that gives me this number instead, 87.24. So all Robbie is trying to do on a daily basis is get to approximately 85, 87, 90 grams of protein. The question is, can Robbie get there with plant-based foods? Easy. It's very easy. Yeah. If you just use a diet tracker, like my fitness pal or chronometer, and you just list the foods that you're eating on a daily basis, you are probably likely to find that it's not that hard to get to 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, hundred grams of protein. I have so many friends that are eating hundred plus grams of protein per day, eating a plant-based diet, and they don't even think about it. Mm. Right? So this idea that protein deficiency starts from a plant-based diet is unfortunately, it's not true. And, um, if anybody's looking for more information about it, we're, we're happy to go into more detail. And the amino acids is not an issue as well. Yeah. Okay. So amino acids are basically the building block of proteins. There's, you know, total 20 amino acids. Some of them are essential. Some of them are not essential. And so rather we can't fixate on amino acids. You cannot fixate on specific individual amino acids because it's, it's like missing the forest for the trees. Okay. What you're looking for is a total, uh, you're looking for the maximal nutrient density. That's really what you're looking for. How can I get the most nutrients in my mouth per bite of food? Okay. And when I say nutrients, I'm talking about carbohydrate, protein, fat, also vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. I'll say that again, carbohydrate, protein, fat, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. And we're looking for nine classes of nutrients with every single bite of food. Love and it. so rather than focusing on where am I going to get my anthocyanins and where am I going to get my carnosine and where am I going to get my vitamin K2, we can't play that game. The, instead, you play the game of how can I maximize my nutrient density? And when I do, then my amino acid intake will be taken care of. My uh, monounsaturated fat intake will be taken care of. My polyunsaturated fat will be taken care of and so on and so forth. Love that. Love that philosophy. Like I said, I have so many more questions, but I need to wrap this up. I know my listeners are going to love this. They may DM you with lots of questions, but um, why don't you tell them where they can find more info um, about your book, your course, things like that? For sure. So we have a lot of materials for people and kind of treat people. We, we, we have a lot of information online um, and you can find us on many different places, depending on how you like to take information in. Um, our first place is what Robbie mentioned. You can go to amazon.com. It's this really small website. It's brand <laughs> new. You may have heard of it. Okay. And go type in mastering diabetes and you can get the mastering diabetes book right there. Okay. That's the first stop. If you know anybody that's living with diabetes and you're interested in trying to help them out, then please pick up a copy of that book and send it to them. Okay. 
We also have a podcast just like yours, probably not as uh, not as fancy and not as impactful as yours, but we got one. And if you're looking for specific information about diabetes, come check out our podcast. Your we pod- also have a YouTube channel. Your podcast is that? great. I was going to say your podcast uh-huh. is great. Don't, yeah, don't awesome. diminish it. But I thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you like watching YouTube, like I do go to, go to YouTube and type in mastering diabetes. You can find us there and um, you can have a good time looking at a bunch of videos there. The final place is our website, masteringdiabetes.org. Okay. Go to masteringdiabetes.org. We got recipes. We got blog articles. You can um, sign up to talk with a member of our team and we can see if we can help you out to join one of our coaching programs and see if you're a good fit for the program. Um, and then if you love social media, then go straight to Instagram or go to Facebook and look up Mastering Diabetes and you should find us on both of those platforms. We, we are on TikTok as well. We're having some fun on TikTok. We're not dancing over there, but we are sharing some scientific information. So, Oh, that's awesome. I've just started to do TikTok and let me tell you, it's a, an interesting <laughs> platform. How about that? It sure is. It sure is. Well, that's amazing that you have so many resources for people. I love it. Do you think more doctors are being educated on this research? Because this is complete opposite for a lot of people dealing with diabetics. So is this new and up and coming? The answer is yes. It is absolutely happening. Uh, There's a younger generation that is learning about this and, you know, bringing it forward. And also, you know, we're really proud to have our, our clients bring it to their doctor. So we have clients say, hey, I want my doctor to read a copy of your book. We'll send the doctor a copy of the book. The publisher will do that. And we have a lot of clients who just get such amazing results. And then the doctor's like, wait a minute, like, well, what's going on? And that's how they learn. So it's one of our missions is to help, you know, change this whole dialogue in the world of diabetes health is through the success of our clients um, sharing this information with their doctors. And then if a doctor gets on board, like the, the amount of people they can impact is, is quite large. Yeah, I hope it, the research just spreads like crazy. Thank you so much, you guys, for everything that you are doing and all that you're trying to help people with. I always close my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you guys say it is? Okay, so it looks like we lost Cyrus. Hopefully he comes back. Oh, we did, didn't but, we? That's okay. You can answer for him. Okay, if I had to guess, I think Cyrus would say love. That's what I think Cyrus would say. And my answer to this one uh, in, for today's particular show, because I would agree with love, but I can't say the same thing as Cyrus, right? So I'm going to go with self-awareness. Mm. I think, you know, really getting to know yourself uh, and it's just like what you want, what you want to create um, is like the most important ingredient. I love that. It's so true as you become more aware of even like your body and how your body is feeling and how it feels with certain foods and other foods. It's so important. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you again for both being here today. I know my listeners have learned a ton. All you listeners, go check them out on all their different platforms because you'll continue to learn more and share this with anyone that you know is diabetic or pre-diabetic or dealing with insulin resistance. So again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. And I'm excited to connect with all of you on whatever platform you want to connect with us on. We read all the DMs, all the comments, like we're very active. So hit us up. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. 
Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.